0: All right, friends, we're going to go into our scripture reading today. Uh, we are continuing in the gospel according to Matthew. We're going to read chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. Uh, we're going to read this in the NIV, uh, so we encourage you to find uh, either a Pew Bible or um e- if you want to look that up in a Bible app or if you happen to have the NIV. Uh When we go over in the sermon, we're going to go through the ESV, uh, but we're going in the NIV because that's the what our Pew Bibles are currently. And so... What I'm going to do is I'm going to read the first verse. We'll all respond with the verse after that. We'll keep going back and forth until the end. And so, um, friends, when when you are prepared to read the scripture, uh, if you could stand as able. Again, it's Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. May the Lord bless the reading of God's word for us. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think that you, you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. I'm a little concerned right now About your salvation and stuff How come you have not been baptized? Because I never got around to it, okay? I don't know why you always have to be judging me Because I only believe in science But tonight... We are going up against Satan's cave. And I just thought it would be a good idea if you... (laughs) Felicidades. Brothers and sisters, I've been waiting to play that clip uh, for, I think it's like 12 years. (laughs) My wife always tells me to play this clip when we're doing... uh, when we're talking about, like, confirmation class or something. But, uh, <laughs> so, if you've ever seen the movie Nacho Libre, um, what was going on, it was kind of hard to hear, uh, but what was going on was uh, there was a guy who's, who's a monk, Um, But he really always wanted to be a a, a Libre uh, wrestler in Mexico, right? Like one of those like mass wrestlers. And uh, his partner uh, is not a Christian. And so in the beginning, he's like, I'm a little concerned about your salvation and stuff. (laughs) And so he, 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 you know, springs this surprise baptism on him, right? Praise the (laughs) Lord! And... uh, Brothers and sisters, I know this is kind of silly. Uh, we're going to be talking about baptism today, and uh, I just wanted to acknowledge from the top that maybe some of the ways that we think about baptism are kind of like what Nacho Libre thinks, where he thinks that uh, baptism is kind of like this magic thing, right? That if you do it, if you happen to dunk the guy in water the right way, that he's going to be saved. He's going to get to go to heaven forever, right? Um, but I, brothers and sisters, this message is not primarily about baptism, the rites, which I know we have these images in our minds, uh, but we're going to talk about baptism in terms of what it meant in terms of the kingdom of God. Okay, so I want us to try to wipe the, the the slate clean. Obviously, this is not how you baptize people. <laughs> and by the way, uh, we, we've been talking about uh, John the Baptist, right? That was his name, John the Baptizer. Well, that was like kind of his nickname, right? I don't think he was born the Baptist. That wasn't his last name. But they called him that because that's what his ministry was about. And the word for baptism, baptismo, means to dunk or immerse. And so, just, you know, kind of just for a point of theological clarification, I know that there's been a lot of debates about how you baptize people. And so, um, maybe you've come from a Baptist church, and in Baptist churches, they're very, very insistent on baptizing by full immersion. Like, you, you got to do it by full immersion, right? Um, and to be honest, uh, you know, Methodists oftentimes, I mean, we don't do this, but, <laughs> you know, we just kind of take some water and sprinkle it on their head. And some people are like, Psh, what is that? It's not baptism. And by the letter of the law, they're actually right, right? So, uh, you know, if we wanted to kind of translate it into English, John the Baptist would be John the Dunker, right? It makes you think of like you know, basketball, Kobe, you know, John the Dunker, it's a full immersion. And that's going to be important when we talk about baptism. Uh, but again, brothers and sisters, what we are talking about here, and you'll see it, that we're not talking about um, this right that we do to babies or this right that we do to kind of ensure eternal salvation, at least not the way that John was doing it. Um, and so let, let, let's take a look at what uh, it's about. And brothers and sisters, I'm making the contention. I'm trying to argue that what the Gospels is really about is about one of these words, right? And, and last week we, we went over this. And just as a review for those of you who aren't here. And also because I know what I shared last week might be a little hard for us to understand. But if we don't get this, then the Gospels do not make sense. They do not make sense. A lot of the teachings, a lot of things Jesus does, we're just curious at it. We're like, well, how does this fit in the normal stories that I hear? Right? And and, and the normal Gospel that most people hear. I was reading this book uh, this, this past week uh, called uh, The King Jesus Gospel. And uh, The King Jesus Gospel tries to argue that what we call Gospel is not actually gospel the way that the original uh, writers of the, the, the New Testament meant it, right? That uh, what we call gospel is actually a plan for salvation, right? So haven't you heard, you know, maybe that the gospel is something like this? That if you believe in what Jesus did for you on the cross, that, that he died for your sins, and if you believe that, it doesn't matter what you do, but just believing that you will be saved forever and you will get to go to heaven, right? Isn't that what most of us think is the gospel, right? But it's kind of astounding how many times that appears in the gospels, which is very, very little, right? I mean, there's John 3, 16. Don't get me wrong. It's in there, right? But have you ever wondered why Matthew, Mark, Luke, John is not called a gospel, what is it called? It's called the gospel according to Matthew. The gospel according to Mark. The gospel according to Luke. The gospel according to John, right? Gospel means good news. And what N.T. What Wright talks about is that in the ancient world, um, you would have people who would have a gospel, good news, and they would go gospeling. What does that mean? another word that we have, and the word they would have used in the ancient world would have been what we understand as a herald, right? Somebody who goes around proclaiming important news. They didn't have the internet back then, right? They didn't have newspapers. So instead you would to have heralds who would be like, hear ye, hear ye, I have important news. Good news, everyone. Alexander the Great won, right? There's a great battle, and the fate of the whole world was in the balance. And good news, Alexander is now the king right? Or Caesar Augustus is the son of God. They would say stuff like that, right? And so when you see stuff in the gospels, in the New Testament, where they talk about the good news, people in the ancient world would have understand that. They would have understood that in many, many cases, that kind of proclamation was trying to tell you, you have a new king. Right? And so um, in, in the, the, the King Jesus Gospel in this book, he says, I know, I know this sounds like, like a duh statement, right? But this blew my mind. You know, just one day I was like reading the Gospels and I had this thought. What if the gospel according to Matthew, the mass the gospel according to Mark, the gospel according to Luke, the gospel according to John is the gospel? And you're like, well, yeah, <laughs> but we've reduced the 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 gospel into like, you know, a one sentence or a four-point plan of salvation. And, you know, brothers and sisters, that's not wrong, right? But at least according to this author, he's saying like, that's not wrong. That's just not the gospel. The gospel is bigger than that. Yes, that's part of the gospel, but the gospel is the whole story of Jesus and how he is trying to fulfill the story of Israel. It is bigger than that, right? And so I was trying to prove this point last week, that out of these words, which one do you think appears the most in the New Testament? So we went over this last week. And for many of us, the, our understanding of, of gospel has to do with grace, right? We're like, it's all about grace. And grace appears in the Bible a lot, but I made I I, I the font size reflect the number of verses where these four words appear in the New Testament, and it looks like this, right? Grace only appears three times, so you can barely see it. But the word kingdom, that's a 120 font, right? Just to kind of prove to you what the Gospels are actually about. It's about the kingdom, right? And, and one of the arguments that I'm trying to make is that consistently, the kingdom, this message... This is one of the most offensive, one of those most controversial, one of the most difficult messages for us to hear. So much so that I tried to argue last week, and I'm going to try to convince you. This is why they killed Jesus. They didn't kill Jesus because they're bad people, right? Or they thought Jesus was a bad person. They killed Jesus because he was trying to take away their kingdom. And one of the cases, one of the things that I think we do in this world and in all worlds, in the Roman world, in the Jewish world, in the Christian world, is we're always trying to blunt the impact of the gospel of the kingdom of God. We have to. We have to. Because we want to. We are prone to. It is the way our society is set up to preserve our kingdom. And so, what we're trying to understand, and what I think you're going to see, is how baptism is entrance into this kingdom. Okay, now, I promised you I would do something last week that I get, didn't get to last week, and so I want to make good on this promise. I want to explain to you why in Matthew uh, that Jesus is is quoted as saying, the kingdom of the of heaven is here, is at hand right? As opposed to the kingdom of God, as it appears in Luke and Mark, right? Because that has really screwed us up. We think like, oh, kingdom of heaven, that's like the cloud city that you go to after you die, right? With the angels and the harps, right? And that's what a lot of us think, right? But um, I want to explain to you um, what that really means. And so, first of all, it doesn't say the kingdom of heaven. It says the kingdom of the heavens, plural. That's important, right? Um, because we have the wrong understanding of heaven. We think it refers to some kind of cosmic place where God resides, and it can. Oftentimes when it's talking about heaven, singular, that yes, in the Bible it can mean that. It can mean the place where God rules, right? And so, you know, we'll say things on earth as it is in heaven, right? That's the Lord's prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? And so, yes, we do want the kingdom of God to come here on earth. But here, I want to show you that our view of what heaven or the heavens is, is, isn't exactly what they meant in the Bible, okay? So I want to prove to you by going back to the very beginning. So this is from Genesis chapter 1. And so, um, brothers and sisters, just, you know, really use your brains on this. And, you know, try to question, what do they mean by heaven? Okay? So so this is a very first chapter in the Bible. And it says, And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. You guys see that? Does that sound weird to you? Okay. Uh, so, so I try to explain this more. And there was evening, and there was morning. The second day, and God said, "Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear." And it was so. Right. So the waters under the heavens. Right under the heaven. It's the same word, by the way, right? That word heaven in uh, Hebrew is a plural word, right? The heavens. So under the heavens, be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together, he called seas and God saw that it was good. Now, if you think that heaven here means the cloud city where God resides after you die, this makes absolutely no sense, Right? Because it makes it sound like that place is just a little over earth. Let me show you a diagram of what that looks like. I just did this on Microsoft Paint, so it's pretty crude. <laughs> I know, look at my mad skills here. Alright, so this is what it's saying. Uh, so this is the second day of creation. It says God separated the waters above from the waters below. And he created an expanse in between them, right? And he called that expanse heaven. That makes no sense, right? By the way, uh, what a lot of people will say is they're like, oh, the water's above. I know what that is. Those are clouds. Maybe, maybe. You know, there's moisture in clouds for sure. Um, actually, it's very interesting. Uh, just as a side note, uh, do you guys remember the flood, right? The flood that that it rained for 40 days and 40 nights and it just flooded the whole earth. And this is a universal myth. Almost every major ancient civilization has some kind of flood myth. And it's so much so that, that the most secular scholars are like, man, this probably happened. Something like it happened, right? Or it's just a part of universal consciousness. But every society, civilization has some kind of story about a massive flood. And what some Bible scholars think is that when it's talking about waters above, they literally mean the waters above. That there was like a canopy that was covering the earth that was just full of water. And so when the earth flooded, that canopy was unleashed and all of the earth was flooded, right? I mean, how much water would it take to flood the earth? Anyways, just interesting, right? But this idea of waters above and waters below and in between is heaven. And then we're told that from the waters below, that on the next day, it gets separated from the dry land, Right? And it tells us that this was happening right below the heavens. So, what is a heaven? Right? In in, um, Paul, Paul talks about uh, in in 2 Corinthians that somebody who had um, this spiritual experience where he got caught up into the third heaven. And you're like, third heaven? What the heck is that? Right? Brothers and sisters, the biblical worldview is there's not one heaven. There are many heavens. And if you think of heaven as just one place that's somewhere way up there, then this makes no sense. But when you see in scripture, we have a lot of a hard time translating this. The most common word that they use for heavens is sky right? But again, that doesn't quite do it, because our concept of sky is way up there, right? But according to this, according to Genesis chapter 1, heavens are right above the earth, right? So where is there, in in, in other words, friends, that I think a better way to translate heavens, well, I mean, there's just a lot of words you can use for it. You can use atmosphere, you can use air, right? So, what is the saying then? If God is meant to rule in the heavens, plural, where is God supposed to rule? Where is God supposed to rule? Just way up there? Somewhere way, 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 way in space? After we die, we go there. That's where God has ultimate power. Or does it mean that God is supposed to rule here? Here. Everywhere, every heaven, everywhere where air touches, that is where God is meant to be king, right? That is a much more challenging and subversive message than, oh, God is just ruling someplace after we die. Because if you believe in that kind of kingdom, well, you don't have to give up this kingdom, right? But if you are saying the kingdom where God reigns is meant to come here, your kingdom come, it must mean my kingdom has to go. And so I just want to show you, brothers and sisters, why we keep trying to make the kingdom of God not here, right? Right? But the message is the kingdom of the heavens is at hand. It has come. It has arrived. Jesus is coming, and he's coming to change everything, right? So, so with that in mind, let's go back to uh, the, the scripture that we read today. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, brothers and sisters, this is John the Baptist, and John the Baptist was getting really popular. And some religious leaders, Pharisees and Sadducees, very, very well-respected teachers of Israel, And they come, and John the Baptist does something that would have sounded so weird. I mean, brothers and sisters, talk about taking a kingdom and turning it upside down. These are the most respected people, right? And John calls them the children of vipers. That's what it means. Brood of vipers means the children of vipers, now, you probably know from Genesis that we mentioned before, right, that the deceiver, the original deceiver, was a snake, right? To call the most respected religious leaders the children of snakes is highly offensive. And it, frankly, it doesn't make sense. Is it because they were bad people? Well, you know, I mean, later on, Jesus is going to call them hypocrites and things like that right? But these are people who looked the part. They sounded the part. They had nice robes and they had the, the, the long flowing, the, the really like wise looking beards, you know, that you could scratch when, you, when you're thinking about scripture and how to interpret it. Hmm. What does that mean? You know? And these guys were doing lots of holy stuff, And so that John would come and call them, you are the children of vipers. You know, I mean, he is really uprooting the system here. Who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Oh my gosh, we don't talk this way. Man, if you talk this way in church, you know, people will just stop listening. You know, they're like, who talks about wrath anymore? But he's like, man, there is a reckoning coming. What kind of reckoning is he talking about? If his message was heralding the kingdom, make no mistake, this is what he's saying. You are an enemy of the king. This is the wrath. The king is going to come, and he's going to clear house. He's going to come, and he's going to defeat his enemies. And he's calling the religious leaders. His enemies. Oh my gosh, this is crazy, isn't it? And then he says this, this word, bear fruit and keeping with repentance. Now, brothers and sisters, we are very tempted to hear passages like this and be like, yeah, no duh. Pastor Steve, Jesus was trying to get rid of the Jewish religion. He was trying to get rid of this old school worldview. Right? And what a lot of us do is we're like, yeah, yeah. So Christians came along and we cleared house. right? And we just got rid of all the Jewish stuff. right? But I don't think that's what he's talking about. You can think that if you disregard what it means for the kingdom of God. What, it's not just the kingdom of Israel go. It's all kingdoms go. The kingdom of Rome, the kingdom of America, the kingdom of Korea, the kingdom of Steve. All of those must go. That is much more challenging than just saying, oh yeah, yeah, we have a new religion. By the way, we've tried to do this all the time. Look at what happened with Christianity. In, uh, when Constantine came to power, all of a sudden, overnight, Roman Empire becomes Christian. Now we have to get rid of all the language of kingdom of God. Because it doesn't make sense. The dominant kingdom is now all Christian. And brothers and sisters, this is what we did. We took um, old religion, the religion of, uh, of Rome, and we just slapped a Christian name on all of it. A lot of it, okay? It's not entirely that. But even look at Christmas, right? Uh, Many scholars back in the day, before uh, Christianity became the dominant religion of of Rome, they actually thought Christmas was in the spring, right? Most scholars thought that. Uh, Now, we're not really sure. Nobody really knows when Christmas is. But why is it December 25th? Because that's when the pagan holidays were already happening. So we took a pagan holiday. And by the way, you know what they did in that pagan holiday? Guess. They dressed up trees and they gave away gifts. Why do you have a tree in Christmas? Do you see a tree in any of the Bible? Right? It's a Roman holiday that we took and we dressed up and we made it Christian. Now, I still celebrate Christmas. I love Christmas. Okay? (laughs) I'm not telling you to stop celebrating Christmas. I'm telling you that this is what we always do. Instead of challenging our worldview, we take our worldview and just slap a Christian label on it, right? So why do our churches look like this? Do you see anywhere in the Bible that a a church should look like this? Did the Jewish temple look like this? No. Jewish temple was round. It didn't look like this. This looks like a Roman basilica, Because you had all these Roman basilicas where you used to meet and you used to worship those gods. So overnight, they're like, well, we can't worship those gods anymore because now we're Christian. So they took all the Roman basilicas and they made them into churches. Right? We always do this. Right? And brothers and sisters, in many ways, what I'm trying to say is that when we take our power and we really challenge it, it is a complete revolution. But we never really want to do that, do we? We never want to get rid of power. But this is absolutely what Jesus was doing. He was coming... To clean house. Now, it's very interesting, the language you hear. You see, brood of vipers. So, the, you children of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And then the next part, it says, And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Why is he so obsessed with children? Because this is where the power of the kingdom of Israel comes from. Uh, I got this from Richard Rohr, but he talks about uh, four fundamental institutions that we have in society. Four fundamental social structures that we have. That all societies have these four things, right? It's family or a kinship system. Uh, we have the economic system, we have a political system, and we have a religious system. Every single society has that. But in every single society, one of those will take the most power. And it will be the thing that dominates the rest of the society. Right? And brothers and sisters, make no mistake, Jesus is coming for that. He's coming to upend that power. So let, let's talk about these for a second. What do you think America's dominant institution is? Out of these four, do you think it's family, economics, political, or religious? Which one? All right, now, some people, some of the leaders have already told this, and you guys already said the answer. (laughs) What is it, guys? (laughs) It's economics. It's money. It is absolutely money, right? This is what runs our whole society. Right. So we have other values and it's not to say that these other things aren't important. But, um, you know, if you want proof of this, look at, um, you know, some people might even say like, oh, wait, but Pastor Steve, isn't that politics? Because politics is really important. It's really not. Yeah, at least like not for the average person. Right. Like, guys, who's the Secretary of State? Can you name one other Supreme Court Justice than Ruth Bader Ginsburg? <laughs> we, most of us don't, are so ignorant about politics. We don't know anything about politics. Right? And most of our politics, by the way, it revolves around money. Who has the money is who has the power. And so um, a lot of uh, people say, a lot of social pundits, this is not original thought. But they're like, hey, if you want to predict the outcome of an election, just look at the economy. So someone came up with a phrase. They say, it's the economy, stupid. Right? Just everything is explained by the economy. So if you have a good economy, then the power that is already in place, Republicans, Democrats, doesn't matter. They'll probably stay in place. If the economy is bad, then you'll probably get a new political power. Right? That is how easily our political power shifts. Every four years or every eight years, it shifts on the economy. Right? Because that is the ultimate power. That is what matters most for us. You know, the way people talk about, um, you know, the economy, it, it's kind of strange. Um, Richard Rohr talks about this in New York Times, um, uh, the, the uh, editorial cartoon. And what it is, is there's a dollar sign and it's on a throne. And people are bowing down and worshipping the dollar sign. Right? And then this guy uh, is saying to another guy in this temple where they're worshipping the dollar sign. He's like, you know what? The reason why I like this religion is because at least it's not hypocritical. You know, that, that's what we all do. We worship money. And, you know, sometimes you'll, you'll see things in this world that don't really make sense unless you understand that. Right? A very high value in, in our country, and we'll talk more about this tomorrow. Uh, uh, next next Sunday, sorry, not tomorrow, <laughs> unless you want to call me and we can talk about it. Uh, next Sunday, we'll talk more about this. But work is a very high value for us, right? And so in America, we hate giving people handouts. Oh man, you know, we, we, we can't give charity to people, right? You know, welfare, that's anti-American. But what happens? When a major, major corporation, automobile company, starts to fail, what do we do? Without hesitation, we bail them out. We give them lots of money. Why? Because we cannot afford for our economic system, the primary religion of America, to fail. We can't. We can't. People talk about this. This is what it means to be an American, to make money and to spend money. You know, and sometimes people, like, they talk about that, like, it's your patriotic duty. You know what? I'm going to buy a new flat screen TV. No, I'm going to help the economy out, you know? And by the way, this is not the way that the, the, um, the world of Jesus worked. It was a different world. Um, and so, what do you think? Uh, don't flip it yet. Uh, what do you think the fundamental institution. Uh, was for uh, first century Palestine, for for uh, well okay, I'll give you a, a greater hint. Koreans, South Korea, has the same kind of system. What out of these four is the most important for Koreans? Is it family, economy, politics, or religion? It is absolutely family, right? Uh, so, family or the kinship system, it's what we call honor and shame societies. This is also the way that first century Palestine worked. It was all about your reputation, what other people think about you, right? And now, this is not to say that family is not important in America, but it's way more important in Korea, Right? And so what people think about you, honor and shame, is the driving power in Korea. How do we know this? A few years back, I've talked about this before, but there was a major works program in Korea where they were redoing roads and bridges, and they, they were trying to uh, shore up the infrastructure of Korea. And in Korea, th- this, this will you know, give you a hint, in Korea... Um, uh, South Korea is the most over-educated country on earth, right? meaning that it has the highest percentage of people who have at least a, a four-year college degree right? And up. It's the highest percentage. And what was happening at this time, so this is around 2009, is a lot of these people couldn't find work. There were just way too many people who had like very advanced degrees and not enough work to give them. So there's a bunch of people who are unemployed. And in Korea, they needed to fix the roads and the bridges. They're like, hey, this is a win-win. We have a bunch of people who need jobs and we have to fix the roads. So let's give these people these jobs and let's train them, right? And they offer very, very lucrative jobs, very, very good jobs for these people to to take. And guess what happened? Not many people took them. In America, I guarantee you, they would have taken them in a heartbeat, but not in Korea. Why? Because when you go and you talk to your mother-in-law, you say, oh, I got a new job. Oh, what kind of job did you get? (laughs) you're like, oh, I'm a construction worker. What? Well, you know, my other son-in-law, he's a doctor, right? (laughs) This is what happens in Korea. Something weird happens in Korea that does not happen in any other nation on Earth. Well, pretty much not. It definitely doesn't happen in America. If you don't get into college in Korea the first time, there are all these students who will jump in front of a bus or a subway, right? You guys have heard about this. Why? Why? In America, it's like, oh, well, I guess we've got to look at some other options. But in Korea, it is a shame and honor society. Oh my gosh, I can't tell my parents I didn't get into college. What are they going to think? What are these people going to think about me? Right? This is the way that it worked in Jesus' time. And so if you happen to be Korean or have Korean culture as part of your upbringing, some of these stories of Jesus will make so much sense, right? In a shame and honor society, it is all about your reputation. So what does Jesus teach? Number one, one of the things, and we'll go over this in a few weeks, when he calls the first disciples, what does he do? What, what does he tell them to do? Does he tell them, hey, you know what? You got to stop drinking and smoking, right? You got to s- stop looking at, you know... Bad images on the internet. And then you can follow me. No, what does he do? Leave your father and your mother and leave your job. Those are the two hallmarks of a kinship society. Those are the two things that define you. At least for the the disciples as as, as a man, right? Leave my father in the boat? He's fishing right there, right? See you, dad. That's so disrespectful. Who would do that? But that was the requirement to follow Jesus. Do you remember Jesus' teachings on prayer and giving? What does he say? When you give, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. What is that about? It's undercutting that whole system of shame and honor. That that uh, for a lot of us, you know, we'll pray very impressive prayers, you know, to impress other people. And people will be like, "Mm, man, look at how holy that gypsum name is. You know, man, look how, look how spiritual that guy is. Oh, mm. yeah, I'm going to give him more honor, more reputation. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. We're not going to play that game anymore, right? When you pray, do it in secret. And then your father who is in the heavens will reward you. He's flipping it upside down. Right, All of the traditional ways that we get power, Jesus has come for that. So brothers and sisters, you get these nice religious people who are in these robes, and they're telling people, hey, this is how you get your sins forgiven. Right? What did you have to do? You had to go through all of these elaborate things. And by the way, you had to pay the money when you did it. When you get to the temple, you have to pay an offering. And then you have to go through this complex ritual. You you gotta kill a bird or some animal, right? And you gotta do the right prayers, right? And you gotta go all of this through the religious authority. And what was John doing in that river? He was giving them a baptism for the forgiveness of sins. That would put the religious authorities out of business, right? And so they come, and they're like, hey, who's this troublemaker who's taking away our business, our way of life? And that's why he's like, hey, you brood of vipers, why'd you come? Hmm? What'd you come for? What did you think was going to happen? Right? And th- th- just think about how radical this is. I- in view of that, brothers and sisters, that we have made religion, we have made it about this whole system right, that you have to come up to. And we use that. We use that as power. We think we are more spiritual than other people, because we go to church, or, you know, we're, we're religious people. We have titles after our names, or before our names. Oh, I'm a Moksa or something. I'm just absolutely, brothers and sisters, a part of that system. I have been for many years. I remember, um, I used to go to these staff meetings at church, and uh one of the staff meetings I went to, I, I would dress just like this, right? Just like a regular dress shirt, slacks, right? And I went to one of the staff meetings, and one of these older uh like like elders in the church, he's not a pastor, but he was addressing me during the meeting and he was like, Hey, hey, you um uh, you want you want to share next? I was like, Hey you? Excuse me? I went to seminary, right? You address me as Muksani. Right? You address me as Reverend hey You. Right? I was so offended. So you know what I did? Every other staff meeting I went to, you know what I did? I wore a suit. Right? So you're not gonna look at me like a little kid. You're not gonna look at me like you're inferior. Right? You're gonna treat me with respect and honor. Oh my gosh, brothers and sisters, it's everywhere, right? It is a part of the way we live. And think about how radical it was what John the Baptist was doing. You you know how available God's forgiveness is for you? You know how plentiful it is? It's as available as this river. Just come into the river, right? And I will dunk you in this river and you're forgiven. Oh my gosh, that is so radical what he was doing. That's how available God is supposed to be. But brothers and sisters, make no mistake. John the Baptist continues by saying, Okay, I came for um, baptizing you with water for repentance. But he's very clear. He said, you must produce fruit in keeping with repentance. The Greek word is worthy of repentance. Repentance. Um, uh, in the weights of repentance. In other words, if you are going to live in this new way, your life must reflect that. And so he says, I come baptizing you with water for for repentance to show you that it's a new world order, to bring you into the new world order. But then the real change is going to come. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I. Of course, he is talking about Jesus. Whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his flesh threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Brothers and sisters, all the water imagery, the baptism, you know, th- that's very soothing. You're like, oh, yeah, water, mmm. It's like taking a dip in a pool. You know, I have a friend who, um, uh, th- th- at his church, uh, th- they're a Baptist church, and they couldn't afford, like, a big fancy uh, baptism vestibule, so they just got a kiddie pool, right? And they just have an inflatable kiddie pool, and they just do it there. And you're like, oh, that's kind of fun, you know, that's kind of cool. But then John the Baptist is like, okay, okay, so... Now you get the imagery of what I'm trying to do, but now someone is coming with fire. What does fire do, guys? Fire burns. This is exactly the imagery he's using. He says, there's a lot of chaff. The chaff is the husk of the wheat. The good stuff is on the inside. The husk is this very hard, impenetrable barrier right and it's really hard to get off you can't just get it and just be like uh, and it'll come off you have to beat it off right they they had this threshing process it's very violent right and to thresh it off i mean you had to really really work at it to get that impenetrable husk off this is one of the things i've learned about power friends power does not want to give up power does not want to give itself up that's what power is That is why so many times, even in the church, we get this wrong. We gravitate to power. We make Christianity just another game of power. We ally ourselves with political power and we're not understanding what Jesus is talking about. So oftentimes, brothers and sisters, like it or not, this is what must happen. The way that Jesus is coming to change things is with fire. He's going to burn up the chaff. That is the impenetrable stuff that we do not want to give up. It's going to have to get consumed, right? But I want to be clear. I'm not talking about Jesus coming, and we're not talking about preaching fire and and brimstone and damnation. We're not talking about that. What we are talking about is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit and fire. That's what the Holy Spirit is going to come and do. It will change things, wreck things in your life. Things that you assumed were okay. Things that you assumed were good. That the Holy Spirit is going to come and be like, "Mm, no, I'm going to take over here. We're going to have to give up all those games. Maybe Pastor Steve really likes being like, hey, call me Moksani, Right? I, I like, you know, when I go down uh, to eat and all of the, the, the jipsanims and all the other church people are like, oh, muxanim, oh, come, you eat first. I used to go to restaurants and people would give me free food, right? They're like, oh, do you know who that is? That's Pastor Steve. And I'd be like, oh, yeah, that's right. It's Pastor Steve, <laughs> right? I got to give all that up. It's got to burn up. It's got to go away. None of that can be what I'm living on anymore. We have to live in a completely new way. Brothers and sisters, this is so radical. Who do you think was coming to that river? Do you think it was a bunch of people who had their lives cleaned up? You no, know, A bunch of doctors and a bunch of lawyers. Did you know that in first century Palestine, 98% of the people were poor? And I'm not just talking about like they missed a couple you know weeks of rent or something like that. These people were destitute. They were unseemly. And John is like, come into the river and you can be part of the kingdom too. Would we like that? People came in just off the streets. They knew nothing about Christianity. Maybe it's a drug addict. Somebody who's really wrecked their life. Somebody who's like partying all night, and you know they were partying all night, doing all kinds of so called unchristian things, and they come to church and you're sitting by them and, and you're sitting there, and this is what we used to do in an honor and shame society. We would go and sit next to them and be like, Man, you are so unspiritual. This is what we do in the church, don't we? Don't we do this in the church? We look at that person and say, You are unworthy of God's grace. But that is not Jesus' message. So, brothers and sisters, I just want to make this very clear. Let, let's look at that whole idea of baptism. Um, and, and just want to close with this. Um, so, baptism is about three things. It is about death to the old self. Richard Rohr calls baptism a drowning ritual. Right? Remember, we said it's an immersion. When you go down into the waters, make no mistake, your old life ends. Your old powers end. Your old allegiances, they are over. That's what baptism is supposed to be about. And then it is immersion into a new reality. That's why baptism, the the imagery of it, is about full immersion into that water. When you're in that water, this is what the kingdom reality is supposed to be. Is there any place, any part of your body that doesn't get soaked by the kingdom reality? Of course not. Can you take your job and be like, hmm, you can't touch my job? Can you take your personal internet habits and be like, hmm, you can't touch my personal internet habits? Can you take, uh, can you take my unforgiveness? Oh, you can't touch uh, who I like and dislike. There is nothing in your life. There is nothing that you can keep from that. Your life is now soaked in the new kingdom reality. Right? And then the third is what we already said. It is available to everyone. To everyone, all you have to do is come. All you have to do is be honest. We're going to talk way more about this, friends. Next week... I don't want to oversell this. <laughs> um, yeah, Lord, forgive me. I know I have such a desire to just tell you how amazing next week is going to be because that's my ego, right? <laughs> oh, Pastor Steve's got a great message for you guys next week. Um, but friends... Um, the message next week is going to be the most simple message you've ever heard. It's going be so simple. But just that simple truth, if it can go deep, as it did for me, it's completely changed my life, completely changed my life. I mean, some of the things here, it's just so simple. You know, John's like, "Come into the water, the water's fine. And we make it so complicated. We make the barriers to God so great. We tell people to jump through all these hoops when he's just saying, come in, the water is fine. Right? But it is a new kind of reality that God wants to give you. And yes, there were some people who were threatened by that. Maybe you are too. But I know for a lot of people in Jesus' time, and maybe for you as well, where this message was life like, oh my gosh, I have been living in this old world. I have been so captive to what other people think about me, their opinions, their honor, their shame. All of this stuff gets put on me, the opinion of my parents, the opinion of my peers. Maybe there's some of us who are in a reality where we don't have a job, and now you have two strikes against you. In American society, because we're like, well, you're not making money. And then Korean society, we're like, oh, you're good for nothing because you don't have a job. <sighs> Brothers and sisters, that does not change your reality in God. God wants to say to you, you are my child. It has nothing to do with what you are doing or not doing. It is simply a gift I want to give you. Can we come into that new reality? We're going to sing a song And I want to invite the praise team to come up. But like I said, these messages, friends, it's not meant to give you lots of new information. You know, Maybe some of it is a little different than what you've heard. But what I'm really hoping is the truth of God that is evident will go deep into your heart. Yes, our power structures, the way that this society is arranged is fighting the word of God. Saying, "Mm -mm -mm, no, let's stay in control here. Let's stick to our old power or our old security. And God is wanting to infiltrate that. Remember what we talked about. That invasion, the mustard seed and the mustard plant taking over the field. The yeast that works into the whole bread and makes everything rise. Brothers and sisters, let's just take a moment. and We can just hear some music here. Let's just take a moment and... Let ourselves be open to what God wants to communicate to you. What is the truth of the kingdom that he wants to bring into your life right now? What is it that we need to hear? What is the challenge? What is the good news? Maybe you're just tired of being in charge of your life, trying to manage what this world is trying to tell you. God is just saying just come to me just come to me just, just sink into this pool just sink into this river this river is life there's a lot of stuff that has just been weighing you down the heavy chaff on your life I want to strip that all away The old religion used to tell people you got to work really hard at this. You, you, you got you to really clean up your life before you can come to this river. <laughs> and John the Baptist said, no that's what a river does, it just cleanses you, you don't have to work at it, you just have to come. Just come, just come as you are. Let the waters rush over you, let the waters cleanse you, let the waters give you new life.